Okay, today we get into the U.S. involvement in World War One on our timeline here with the 1941 film Sergeant York, which I didn't realize was uh, it was the number one film at the box office. This was a smash hit at the time in 1941. Eleven Oscar nominations, including a Best Actor for uh, yes, yes, for Cooper for Gary. Yeah, Gary Cooper wins Best Actor. Yeah. Other nominations, picture director, supporting actor and actress. It's an 87, sorry, 88 slash 87 on Rotten Tomatoes. So a very successful film. This is one I had seen before. I'm guessing this is one you had seen before. This is right up your dad's alley, I'm sure. Yes, I had definitely seen this movie before. So speaking of best picture nominees. Yes. Did you see on our Instagram that we got a shout out from another podcast? Oh, so no, because I I was at State Cross Country yesterday, and I kind of saw some like notification stuff happening. But I just always assume when we get like stuff from other podcasts, it's always just spam. Like they're they're just trying to advertise their own stuff. But what was this? So there's a podcast called Shea Cinema. It's a father daughter podcast, and they are watching all movies nominated for academy award for best picture so like i've done yeah but i'm not podcasting like yet. like right yeah. like you've been doing in your in your you know personal right. life but they're documenting their experience in this podcast okay. and they just they just did an episode for the patriot the 1928 one. Oh yes and they shouted us out in the comment oh nice okay i would love to talk to them because i'm since i'm doing the same thing yeah yeah they said also check out for this movie there's a Kenny M Logic, which is another, I don't know if that's a podcaster or something. And then it says for the inside on Schrodinger's cat and at history and film, which is us for their impeccable dive into actual historical facts. Oh, nice. So I thought that that was kind of cool that they're like, they're doing, you know, they're, they're uh, attempting the same project that you are with watching all the Oscar nominees for best picture. And then they also gave us a shout out on, on the Patriot. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. I, I need to hit them up just because, uh, like I said, I'm inevitably I'm farther along. I, I only have like 16, 17 films that are Best Picture nominees I have not seen. I've seen over 500 of the 500 some. I kind of started it so long ago that it was like kind of before <laughs> blogs and podcasts were even a thing. So I kind of, it'd be almost too late for me to document right. it because I have to rewatch everything. <laughs> also, I saw, uh, I got a, a YouTube recommendation. It was like a, like, I, I think it was a two part thing. It was for all Best Picture winners, but a guy went through and watched all the Best Picture winners and made like two long form YouTube videos about it. So okay. I don't know, maybe that's a, a kind of avenue that you or we could look at, you know, at, at some point is documenting that that uh, journey for you because people apparently are receptive to that. Like it's it's an interesting thing to talk about, especially how they all, I, I think we all have a, you know, kind of a a unique perspective too because it's you could talk about the movies themselves but then also how it relates to the history at the time those movies come out oh yes yes i've been i've been doing this so long that it's uh so when i first so i I started with best picture winners and when i quote finished when i when i watched the last best picture winner like so where i had seen them all for the first time was 20 years ago on my on my 25th birthday I I watched Kenneth, or uh, I watched Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, and up to that time, I had now then seen every Best Picture winner twenty years ago. Now, now obviously, I've seen them all since, and that's why I started this. Spent the last twenty years working on nominees, and I only got like seventeen left. Right. Anyway, but yeah, I I would yeah I need to 
Anyway, I don't know how much this is even going to need to be included <laughs> right now. Since uh, sorry if we're getting a little uh, sidetracked here. <laughs> but yes. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um. So my a uh, couple of random things I had here at first, and just just because it's in the top of my notes here. So Walter Brennan, yes, nominated for supporting actor, and then I don't know how to say her name, Margaret Weicherly. I can't imagine it's Witcherly, Weicherly. Anyway, so she plays his mom, and she was nominated, and she's not super famous, but she was the also the mom in White Heat, which is like James Cagney saying, you know, look, ma, top of the world. She's the ma he's referring to. Ah, uh, okay. But you know, Walter Breton was kind of a staple in westerns, like you know Rio, oh yeah, uh, Rio Bravo and Red River. Just kind of a uh, very uh, prevalent guy. He actually won three supporting actor Oscars, not for this film, but in three other kind of earlier films. In fact, and what I read was they actually him winning three Oscars like that was what prompted them to change the rule to not allow extras to vote. Apparently, he was just really popular with the extras, and like, Walter Brennan's going to win every Oscar ever if we don't change the rules kind of thing was almost the vibe I, I, I got. <laughs> That's funny. I I personally, I love Walter Brennan. I think my favorite performance, or at least the one that I've seen the most because I've seen the movie so many times, is Rio Bravo, where he plays a guy called Stumpy. Yes. I, I really like Rio Bravo, yeah. Man, that's such a good performance. How do you like them apples, dude? That's like, it's like yeah. <laughs> just a quintessential Walter Brennan Western performance. It's so yeah. good. So yeah, very popular actor, although I'm sorry, I have some bad news. <laughs> just because it came up in my research and I wrote it in my notes here. Massive racist, and even for the time. <laughs> so like... Walter Brennan was such an a-hole, like, when Martin Luther King gets assassinated, he was happy. Like, he's that guy. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well. <laughs> don't, don't, hey, art, art, <laughs> art versus artist. Art versus artist. <laughs> right, yeah. This, you know, I. He's still a good actor, yeah. I don't obviously endorse any, I don't endorse any of that stuff. Yep, yep, he's still a good actor. The movies, they're still, they're so good. Yep, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I felt so bad. I had it in my notes. <laughs> Uh, again, I, I enjoy Man. his performances as well. I, I almost wish he didn't say anything so I could have just kept being ignorant of that fact. <laughs> you know what? But we're here, we're here to eliminate ignorance on this podcast. <laughs> That's true. No matter where it takes us. And what's, what's our theme? History is complicated. So That's true. Yeah. 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 Bad people sometimes do good things, even if it's just acting. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mentioned this film was number one at the box office in 1941, and part of I think what uh, helped that was it was still in theaters when the Pearl Harbor attack happened, and so like this, oh yeah, this whole massive influx of patriotism. Let's go see Sergeant York, and I couldn't find anything about this, but the whole film made me feel like because it did come out in late 41, to me it almost felt like is this a little bit propaganda-y? Like, it's like, hey, we're, we're getting ready to go to war. Let's talk about how awesome it is when America goes to war. That actually was a criticism of isolationists at the time. They said that the movie was okay. just propaganda to try and get people okay with entering the war that we sh that they didn't think that we should be in. Right. And that, I mean, that also kind of tracks, too, because Alvin York himself, as we will talk about, was a big proponent of getting involved. He was a big proponent of interventionism. Even though he's a pacifist? Is that not necessarily quite genuine in the film? Or are you going to get to that? Yes. We, uh, we'll, we'll talk about oh, that. Man. We'll talk about okay. that. Okay. Okay. 
Well, so let's kind of talk about the, our reactions to the film in, in, in general. I do really like this film. It, 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 even though it's not kind of my, quote, agenda or whatever, like, I'm more of the pacifist too, minus the religion, but it's still a good film. I, I, I kind of, I, I really like the the Appalachian speak that they use. It's kind of, you know, very folksy. It's a very watchable film for 1941. It it, it mostly actually holds yeah. up. I, I, I like this movie. I like this movie. It It is a little bit silly at times. It does have some yeah, of those, yeah. like, you know, 1941-isms. But it knows it is, I feel like. Yeah, yeah but but it's uh, it's way better than something like a Northwest Passage. Yes. Or what was the other one that came out in 1940 that we watched? Oh, Edison the Man. I, I thought right. it was way better than, like, an Edison the Man. It was way more watchable, holds up better. Um, it is an entertaining movie, even like the the battle scenes, while not obviously on the same level as something like a Lawrence of Arabia, they're not bad. And you can tell like, the, okay, this is on like a soundstage. But again, it's 1941. Yeah. But the, right. But for being in made in 1941 and for being made on a soundstage, it, you know, for the special effects that they had at the time, it was pretty good. The historical accuracy notwithstanding okay okay and i'm curious to get into that because i was i was looking at different things than you were looking at research wise and it's directed by howard hawks not to be confused with howard hughes but howard hawks is probably a director that hasn't come up a lot on our show but he's he's big time like he was he is rio bravo like we like we like we mentioned and uh and red river and the big sleep and to have and have not all these uh you know noir films with bogart there his girl friday some more of a comedy i just kind of thought it was funny i haven't seen this film but he had a movie called barbary coast tying into like what we talked about oh. with the pericardus affair and the barbary pirates there okay uh the the original like 1932 scarface he's just uh gentleman prefer blondes with marilyn monroe he's just a very very prolific and successful director that's not a household name anymore even though most people have definitely seen his movies and then the one other thing about the film that i thought was noteworthy did you catch the age difference between actor gary cooper and the actress playing his love interest in the film oh no it's crazy i did not so on screen it doesn't it, oh, okay it, I was going to say, I, I didn't notice anything because visually they didn't look like they were that far apart. Yeah, so I, I would agree. It, it, but it looked just enough that it made me curious to look. So Okay. Cute. Now, now also, though, too, it's not so bad because like the characters are closer in age, obviously, than the actors. Yes. So Gary Cooper's Correct. 40 playing about 30. Right. Because uh, York would be about 30. Um, but the actress playing his love interest was 16. No way. Yeah. Yikes. So that was 40 and 16 uh, were the actors uh, on set there. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you're just you're just dropping the anvils today, dude. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Uh, also, uh, uh, every film reel of Sergeant York made with 100% pure puppy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that I'm okay with. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, this is the film where uh, Cruella Deville got the idea. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, his historically here, so the film is set basically between 1916 and 1918, middle of World War One, pre-U.S. entry, then kind of through the exploits of Alvin York. And let's see, I don't, I, 
I'll, I have a couple things I will mention, and then I'll kind of let you kind of take it over and talk about York himself. So, uh, one, because this is a kind of a visual that kind of stood out to me from having seen it the first time, you know, 10, 15 years ago, is they go, he goes to the bar. So he's kind of a derelict, ne'er-do-well early on. He just kind of has no right. direction in life. And we, his brother goes to drag him home from a bar. And we, when we see the bar... It's like a border bar. Like, literally, the state border goes through the bar, and it's like, hey, I can't oh, sell right. you liquor over here on this side, but I got to sell it to you over on the other side because it's on the Tennessee Kentucky border here. So, I was just kind of curious on the historicity of something like that. Now, I didn't find specifically a, a bar where the border goes through the bar itself, but the spirit of that is definitely accurate. So, the national prohibition of alcohol begins in 1919 with the 18th Amendment, and we'll talk more about that when we get to, like, the untouchables. But local and state efforts were already happening all around the country in various pockets. So Tennessee did ban alcohol in 1909, whereas it was still legal in Kentucky. So the idea that you would have Ah, something like this is uh, at least the right spirit, that you definitely could have had these border bars where people would cop across the border real quick to drink and then drink legally and then be able to come back and uh, be in compliance there. So that was accurate. Uh, the only other thing I was going to mention was just kind of, I tried to look up the history of, quote, you know, conscientious objection to war. And it's not, I mean, it's it's such a broad thing. It's basically just an idea. So it's kind of always been a thing. There's always been people that aren't for the conflict that's going on around them. That, that kind of makes sense. Right. In the Civil War in the U.S., Obviously, we knew people could opt out for a fee. We've talked about that $300. But as the country realized, oh, maybe it's not fair if only the rich people can afford to, quote, object or opt out. Yeah, They they, they did change the policy after the Civil War where um, a person could opt out for religious reasons, which comes up in the film here. Right. And, that, and that policy was in place through World War One. It did have to be religious, though. You couldn't say, yes. well, I just disagree with the p- political reasons behind this conflict, and so therefore I'm against Correct. it. It had to be specifically religious. And getting ahead of our timeline here, just to kind of follow this up with you, how the U.S. has treated it, uh, heading into 1940, the U.S. kind of buckled down and said, nope, opting out's done. No one can opt out. Even if you're the most religious, hardliner, pacifist right. ever, you still have to serve or you're going to prison. Which is what that's where we get into like uh like Desmond Doss and uh uh Hacksaw Ridge. Yes, yes. Which which we'll cover. I'm pretty sure it's on our list. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to it at some point. Yeah, anyways. He was, you know, a very staunch pacifist. But yeah, so we'll talk about his story too. But yes, in, in the nineteen forties that that was a uh a thing where there was no such thing as just getting out of it for religious reasons. And and that kinda continued up through Vietnam, and, and when some of the cases went to the Supreme Court, like Muhammad Ali, who was a famous uh, conscientious objector. Right. And again, we'll probably get into more of that later. Um, and I was trying to look up, so basically, what I found for today, 2023, or at the time of recording, this probably comes out in 2024, but the U.S. policy today is, quote, beliefs which qualify a registrant for conscientious objector status may be religious in nature, but don't have to be. Beliefs right. may be moral or ethical. However, a man's reasons for not wanting to participate in a war must not be based on politics, expediency, or self-interest, unquote. So it can be, it doesn't have to be a specific religion. Like my book says this, 
but it does still have to be I morally object to warfare or the Essex involved with what's going on. It can't just be I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, therefore I'm a conscientious objector. That's sorry, you're still signed up. Again, we haven't had a draft right. since Vietnam, but as far as those things go. At time of recording. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, Logan. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah. The I yeah. <laughs> Future listeners, we're like three <laughs> weeks into the Israel Gaza stuff right now when we are recording this. So yes, hopefully there has not been a draft implemented in the last <laughs> three or four months since we recorded this. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so tell, tell us all about Alvin York. Yeah. So Alvin York, the man, the titular man. He was born in Pall Mall, Tennessee, in 1887. We don't see. Much of his childhood, I don't think we actually see any of his childhood uh, portrayed in the movie, but he grew up working in a blacksmith shop with his dad. He was raised learning to shoot and hunt from a very young age, so that is accurate. They do show that in the film. That turkey shoot, where they have the turkey tied behind the log that keeps poking his head yeah. up, that is an actual real thing that they would do in that area of Tennessee and that Alvin York talked about doing when he was a kid, where they would and they would be like a hundred yards away with muzzleloader rifles and that you know the turkey would pop its head up from behind the log and they would shoot it and whoever hit it first would get 10 cents and get to keep the turkey would they do the actual like the gobble thing to kind of root it out i think that was made up for the movie i don't know if that's an actual uh strategy that you could employ but it's also weirdly hilarious when he does that to the german too yeah (laughs) yeah but does it like say something in german literally just gobbles like a turkey (laughs) Yes. And the guy just like looks because like, what was that? of course you do because it's what a strange noise to hear during the middle of uh World War 1 Argonne offensive. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh when he was growing up, uh the schoolhouse was 3 miles away and was only accessible by quote-unquote roads. I'll put that in air quotes because they're basically just game trails that these kids would have to walk on for miles. And school was only in session for three months out of the year. So it was uh, kind of an afterthought, education Mm, was. Right. He only went through third grade. So, you know, if you do the math on that, he only went to school for nine months total in his whole life. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And so was educated to a third grade level um, and had to stop going actually after his third grade year because his father died. And so that meant that he was the oldest one, oldest boy in the house. And so he is now responsible for making sure that, you know, everyone can eat. So after basically, well, he wasn't a third grader in like, you know, you would think of today like an eight-year-old. He was probably a preteen at this time, maybe even a teenager. But yeah, so he quit school, had to work the family farm, and then also his mother would kind of loan him out to neighboring farms after he was done with his work on their farm. So then he would go help his the at the neighboring farms to make extra money for the family. Even though he was only edu- educated to a third grade level, he did love to read, um, especially he liked reading about like the Old West and cowboys and stuff. During his his teenage years, he started drinking, developed a pretty heavy drinking problem, just like we see in the movie. Drinking, gambling, and fighting were like his three main pastimes. And because of this, he really kind of started to disappoint his mom. So 
the performance that we get is pretty accurate to how he described his relationship with his mom. Okay. Like his mom was kind of disappointed, but also had a lot of love for him. And then in his early 20s, he had a friend, uh, one of his best friends who was killed in a bar fight. And he came home and his mom told him that one of these nights she's, she, you know, someone's going to tell her that he's died because he's been basically doing the same stuff that his friend was doing that just got him killed. And York said that from that moment, he quit drinking. He quit drinking, quit gambling, didn't smoke, didn't fight. And that was like what turned his life around because he saw how he saw how much it was hurting his mom that he was carrying on like that. See, and the film has it basically be to impress the girl instead. I feel like the, having the friend die would be more emotionally impactful. I think I think so too. But when you're making the movie with the you know Hollywood starlet, like you, I think you gotta at least you know, especially at the time, they would probably want to lean on that. Right, and again, we've talked, we've talked about this. This is a time period where they kind of didn't really care about historicity at all or historical accuracy at all. They just wanted to make a movie. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So around this time, too, he starts to get more religiously connected with a new preacher that showed up at their church. He'd always been religious growing up, but really starts to get into it more after he gets sober. And so it was also at this time that the outbreak of World War One happens. And so he registered for the draft. He went and registered, but he claimed exemption on his registration. He didn't initially say that it was an exemption for uh, religion. He just put on there basically, yes, I'm exempt because I don't want to fight in this war. Hmm. And then they sent him a letter back saying, doesn't matter, like, too bad, so sad. You still have to sign up for, like, you still are going to get drafted. So then he said, well, it's because of my religion and, you know, it's because of, uh, you know, Church of Christ or whatever was the name of his specific denomination. And the government said, well, we don't recognize that as a an official religion. You know, there, there's a list, and that's not on it, so huh. you're going to boot camp. Oh, so there were people who could get out of this then. He His sex just was not allowed to. Not necessarily get out of it, but you could... So no one was exempt from the draft, but you could be exempt from combat duty. So, yeah. like, you could be... You could go and be, like a supply person or a logistics person or be like a secretary or something you still had to go be in the army but for people who had religious exemptions it just kept them out of combat right okay if that makes sense yeah 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 but then in the film he or he but he did not qualify because his religion wasn't on the list correct so he did not qualify and uh, i did see that his like the pastor tried to get him to like retry it his mom tried to get him to to submit more paperwork and he basically said I'm just going to I'm just going to do it. So he uh was drafted and reported to Company G 328th Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Division which is now the 82nd Airborne. That's the obviously they weren't airborne hmm. in 1917 but that is the division that then becomes the 82nd Airborne in World War II. So while he's in training he struggles with the idea of pacifism and how he's, you know, like he's in the infantry, so he's going to be doing fighting, but he ends up, a lot like we see in the movie, being persuaded by his company commander and his battalion commander that fighting in the war is not necessarily out of step with 
his Christian religious beliefs. As simply, you know, like we see where they're going through showing the different verses where, uh, like in Matthew 22, Luke 22, John 18, where it says, you know, you can, you can fight in a war. It's not necessarily unchristian like to fight in a war. And they do just also, like we see in the movie, give him 10 days to go home mm. and kind of think it over. And he decides, all right, this is, you know, this is a just cause. And so I'm, I'm good to go. Let's go to France and uh, fight some Germans. So he does. He deploys to France with his division, fights in the battle of, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Mihail? Mihail? It's M-I-H-I-E-L. Mihail? 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 I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyways, so that's, that's his first foray into combat where he's in the trenches. He talks about the absolutely horrific conditions. I'll take this opportunity since I'm remembering it, to say he kept a diary, a daily hmm. diary, for his entire time in the army, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, that's a nice historical artifact. Yeah, in his in his diary, he talks about the absolutely horrific conditions of, you know, no food, trenches are wet, they're getting gas, they're having to wear gas masks for days at a time. When people would die, you can't do anything with them. So, like, the trenches and the areas around them are just littered with bodies of people and horses and they're just you know decaying there's death all around it's it's an absolute hellscape and his uh his experiences are not unique for of course, oh, for right, veterans of, of world war one I. I mean it's, it's like that everywhere so uh he also takes place or also takes part in the argon offensive um, which is where he earned his medal of honor and this is where there is now some some of the things that are portrayed in the film and even some of the stuff that he says and some of the stuff that is quote-unquote official record is somewhat dubious and is Mm. in question today. Um, And actually, a lot of it pretty recently. So York's version and the official version are more or less what we see in the movie. So he's on a small team of like 17 guys they infiltrate german behind german lines you know to try and take out these machine guns they end up coming under machine gun fire and then that's kind of where the official version and what really happened kind of well are thought to diverge uh, because not every like not everyone that was there with york died five of them did but the rest of them were alive and not all their stories match up with what york Mm. said or what the official record says so the official version and which is also basically york's version is that he charges up the hill single-handedly takes out a bunch of germans um you know shooting them from back to front with his pistol you know then captures a german officer and makes him get the rest of them to surrender and actually this is a, a funny thing that he said when he when he captures the german officer and i don't know if this if this is actually accurate or not um or if this is something that he just said happened but either way i it's like a funny moment and i wish that they would have put this in the movie <laughs> when he comes across his german officer he says that he gets the german officer at gunpoint and the german officer says english saying like do you speak english and uh alvin york says no american <laughs> So he says English, asking if he speaks English, but Alvin York said thinks that the German officer is asking him if he is right. English. He says no, American, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious. That's and then he, you know, the the German guy uh, or the the German officer then you know tells everyone else to surrender and that basically 
means that Alvin York single-handedly captures like 130 people. So that story has been called into question. Because it does sound pretty crazy, yeah. Right. But, I, I mean, even the version told by the other guys that were there, I mean, even if it's instead of one person capturing 132 or whatever it was, German soldiers, even if it's 17 guys capturing 130, right. that's still very impressive. Oh, yeah. But that's been called into question. The evidence against it, it comes from a lot of different sources. So one is artifacts found at the site of the battle actually indicate that not only were the rest of the soldiers that were there with York, not only were the rest of the Americans not not doing anything, they were actually heavily engaged in fighting. Like there are 30-06, which was the caliber uh, used in the American rifles, there are 30-06 cartridges found all over that hillside, not just, you know, in the areas where York says he was. So like, there was heavy fighting going on, you know, shooting going on from the areas where the, the rest of his team would have been. Right. Questionable government documents related to the investigation. So, like, there are little things like the affidavits that were signed the day before the investigation took place. So, like, there's affidavits that are signed on, like, February 6th basically outlining the whole story of, you know, what the investigation said, but then the investigation wasn't conducted, like the on-site investigation with York basically doing the walkthrough with right. his fellow officers. Which we kind of see in the film. Or with with the, his commanding officers. That didn't take place until the next day. So it's like, well, how do you have the signed affidavits saying what the story was the day before hmm. you get the story? That doesn't make any sense. One of the, or a lot of the affidavits, they were either the guys that supposedly signed them said, I didn't sign that, or I signed something, but they didn't tell me what it was, or I was like forced to sign that. I didn't get to read it and, you know, was told I would be punished if I didn't sign it. One of the guys, like his signature is just an X, and the it was questioned later, like, hey, why is this guy's signature just an X? And they said, oh, well, he's an immigrant. He doesn't know how to read and write. But he wrote his name on his draft registration card, signed his name in English, and also in basic training, went through an English school to learn how to speak English and write his name. So why would he write his name before getting in the army, but then sign with an X after, like he all of a sudden became mm. illiterate? So there's something like they're trying to cover up, yeah. Yeah, um, and then also the two guys who were in charge of the investigation, it was two generals, General Duncan and General Lindsay. And there's this whole theory about how they kind of saw the writing on the wall with... Uh, like they didn't have the best performance during the war and because the war was now over and that the army was going to start downsizing they wanted to save their jobs and so the story of sergeant york and getting him a medal of honor is a perfect way to do that hmm. and so like that for instance general duncan is the guy who told the reporter from the saturday evening post to look into the story of sergeant york because sergeant york's story was basically unknown until April of 1919, because it showed up in the Saturday Evening Post, oh, huh. written by this guy who got the tip-off from this General Duncan, and there's all this evidence that the story was actually doctored, you know, to make it sound even grander than it actually was. This was kind of curated propaganda, essentially. Yes, curated propaganda to basically save these two generals' jobs. And uh, Sergeant York is kind of the benefactor of it because they can make him to be the hero and these two guys 
were in charge of the unit that Sergeant York served under. So because Sergeant York looks really good, now they look really good. Now they get to keep their jobs after the army downsizes after the end of the war. But I guess kind of back to your earlier point, unless I missed something, I guess, why is it not still just as cool a story? Like you're saying, if okay, just instead of one guy kind of doing it all by himself, it's like a small group of guys. Why is that not just as inspiring or just, like, why would that not also, you know, save the general's jobs or whatever? Cause it's, if it still happened, like they still captured these guys. So I, I don't want to assign any motive here. So all of this stuff is detailed in a book by a guy named James Patrick Gregory Jr. Okay. Uh, and it was actually published at the end of last year. So like oh. this is information and artifacts and like his investigation is less than a year old. Okay. So I think the fact that, you know, like, oh, Sergeant York getting the Medal of Honor, doing all this stuff by himself, that makes the story even grander, number one. But also... And this is, I don't, I don't want to insinuate anything, but I'm just going to say this fact. A lot of the other guys that were with Sergeant York on that ridgeline, on that hillside, were immigrants. Okay. They wanted the American patriot they could hang a a shine lantern on kind of thing. Right. I'm not saying that that has anything to do with it, but I'm saying if you, you know, it's a quote unquote better story if the down home folksy guy from Tennessee who, you know, only has a third grade education, but, you know, ends up, you know, doing the right thing and joining the army, even though, you know, he has these, like, that's a better story. Gotcha. There's a narrative they wanted to push. And so let's tweak this whole event so that we can push that narrative. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, the the name of that book, um, if anyone wants to check it out, is called Unraveling the Myth of Sergeant Alvin York, colon, The Other Sixteen. So it's basically mm. talking about like telling the story of the other uh, the other sixteen guys that were there. So Sergeant York does receive a hero's welcome um, after the war. His like I said, his story was published in the Saturday Evening Post in nineteen nineteen. On his return to New York City, he gets you know the big parade, stays in the Waldorf Astoria. He does get to ride on the subway. He did get a tour of the nice, subway. That nice. is uh, historically accurate. Um, afterwards, he goes on to Washington D.C. Uh, receives a standing ovation from the House of Representatives, meets the Secretary of War, Newton Baker. Um, He probably would have met the president had Woodrow Wilson not been in Paris at the time because he was still in Paris from uh, the end of the war. Yep. He gets discharged from the Army in May and then returns to Tennessee in June of 1919 and marries Gracie Williams upon his return. After he kind of leaves the the public life, or... After he is, you know, done with his homecoming stuff, um, he turns down, actually, a bunch of opportunities for fame and fortune. Which they show that in the film, too. Right. And ends up campaigning for charities, for a lot of infrastructure projects, for his, like, rural homeland. Like, he, a big one was he wanted a road built in, like, an actual improved road into his community. So it would make it easier for people to travel in and out. And that, that did happen. And he kind of continues that for the rest of his life the you know the the charity drives and stuff he uh, establishes the alvin york foundation um and it's actually that charitable drive of his that is the reason that we have the movie in the first place so throughout his life after the war he's very reticent to talk about his experiences um a lot of the times he would go and you know be doing charity stuff and he would get not mad but like disappointed when people would just want to hear about his wartime uh, exploits. Right, right. 
And his his thing was like, I was on one very small part of the front line. A lot of people did a lot more than me. You know, I have also done a lot of other stuff since, you know, I, I my life is more than just killing Germans. Like, so he didn't he didn't really like to talk about the war, but he ended up selling the film rights to the movie to fund a Bible school. So that was what huh. kind of precipitated him allowing his life story to be told in in the movie. So the movie comes out in 1941. And then, like I said before, while he was very opposed to U.S. involvement in World War One, he was very cool with U.S. involvement in World War Two. He even signed up to fight in World War Two voluntarily. So he was in his 50s at that time and was like overweight, arthritic, diabetic. So they were not going to let him be in any kind of combat role. He was commissioned as a major in the Army Signal Corps, although his position was actually mostly like ceremonial. He wasn't really conducting a lot of operations. Mostly he was kind of just traveling around the country, um, a lot of it on his own dime, selling war bonds. In the post-World War II era, he was a very staunch anti-communist. And <laughs> this is almost almost makes a complete 180 from his pacifism of World War I, because not only was he cool with U.S. getting involved in World War II, he said, hey, you know what we should do? Conduct a nuclear first strike on the Soviets. Oh. <laughs> publicly advocated for nuclear first strike against the Soviets, and also publicly advocated for and expressed his disappointment of the fact that this didn't happen, but he really wanted nukes to be used in the Korean War as well. Which, by the way, in the Korean War, the Soviets had nukes too. Like, that right. would have been a nuclear war. It's not like, you know, we're talking like, this is 1946 and the U.S. is the only people with nukes. No, no, no. He was like, oh, yeah, like, we should have used nukes on the Koreans and the Chinese at the end of the Korean War. Why didn't we do that? And even said, like, if they can't find anyone to push the button, I'll do it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, a real a real turnaround yeah. from his uh from his supposed pacifism at the uh beginning of World War 1. Not to assume, but is there is there any I don't know, is there a is there racism involved with that or is that or is that maybe reading too much into it? I don't know. I not that I saw. Okay. I think it was just a like those people are com- communists, they're enemies of the United States. Let's okay. just vaporize them in a mushroom cloud. Wow. Wow. Not sure where that is in the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then I just had a couple of uh, of little personal notes. Um, he and his wife, they had 10 children between 1920 oh, wow. and 1940. Um, not all of them lived um, into adulthood. And then he has a bunch of health problems uh, kind of throughout his you know middle and later age. And ends up dying of a brain hemorrhage um, in 1964 at the age of 76. I did have two other things here, and these are kind of these are kind of personal notes. Okay. So I was reminded of this when doing research. So the camp that he goes to in Georgia at the time is called Camp Gordon, later renamed to Fort Gordon, which today, as of today, well, not as of today, but today is named Fort Eisenhower because. Gordon is, I believe, is named after Confederate general. It was Uh, one of the bases that was renamed this year. Okay. So the whole renaming of bases thing. Oh, okay. We're going there. (laughs) So I can understand the argument for it. 
I don't know. Like, I don't think it's necessarily that big of a deal, but, you know, it's the prerogative of the Department of Defense. They can rename those bases whatever they want. That's fine. And honestly, a lot of them are, like, some of the renames are pretty cool. Like Fort Benning, which was named after a Confederate general, they renamed to Fort Moore after Hal Moore, the guy that Mel Gibson plays in We Were Soldiers. Mm. So stuff like that, where, okay, you're going to, you're going to, you know, if you rename it, you rename it from a, you know, from the Confederate general to someone who, someone else who is either associated with that base, was stationed at that base, who did something heroic or brave or significant. Right. And pretty much all of the base renames got that treatment, with the exception of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Oh. Fort Bragg, North Carolina just got renamed to Fort Liberty, which I think is lame and stupid. Because it's not after anybody, it's just the concept. Right, just named after the concept of liberty. So you're telling me, and so Fort Bragg is the home of the Joint Special Operations Command. It's home of 3rd Special Forces Group. It's home of the 82nd Airborne. You're telling me that nobody from any of those Mm. units' storied legacy rates having a base named after them? By the way, 82nd Airborne, Sergeant York is... From the 82nd Division in World War One, why not rename it Fort York? Fort York, right? Huh? Why name it Fort Liberty? How how bland and lame is that? Like they went through all like all the other bases get a cool like somebody cool that they named the base after, right? But then the one that has one of the coolest potential names, they're just oh yeah, it's a Fort uh, Liberty, like like it's an afterthought. Uh, yeah, it makes you think of like you just like. Fort America and yeah, Fort, Fort Hoorah, uh, <laughs> Fort Good Things. Like it's just stupid. <laughs> I, I think it's just stupid. But anyways, that's that's just my my two cents, my rant on that. Yeah, I don't I don't mind that. I, I was gonna mention quickly just kind of U.S. entry into World War One, which you probably honestly, without researching much, know probably more than I do. But yeah, so with uh, this is very brief. But when World War One started in 1914, the U.S took a stance of neutrality, which is why we don't get it until it to get into it until uh, much later. And both kind of the government and the majority of US citizens felt that was the best the isolationism you mentioned. Like that was kind of where people wanted to be. And our hearts may have been kind of with the British, but we also weren't a big fan of the Russian czar apparently. Again, this is kind of speaking in broad strokes. Um, we just kind of wanted to stay out of the whole thing. Um, when Wilson ran for re-election in 2016, one of his big campaign promises was, I'll keep you out of the... 1916. What did I say? 2016. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Is that wrong? <laughs> um, yes, I don't believe Woodrow Wilson was on the ticket in 2016. I don't think he was eligible for another term or a lie. To be fair, though... <laughs> That would have been about the only way that the 2016 election could have gotten weirder is if somehow Woodrow Wilson was running. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might have opted for the uh, uh, corpse of Woodrow Wilson. If that... <laughs> and I'm not a Woodrow Wilson fan. The only good Woodrow Wilson is a dead Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. The... <laughs> the desiccated skeleton of Woodrow Wilson uh, <laughs> writing it in uh, every every presidential election from hey, here on out. Hey, we still got twenty twenty four. Maybe that's what we need to <laughs> start making some posters now, Logan. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, man, so side note there, I always say the wrong first number. And not just like in this history podcast when we talk about dates. If I say a track time, I'll just I'll get the seconds right and I get the minutes wrong, but don't even know consciously that I did it wrong. It's not that I don't know. I literally say the wrong first number or numbers and I don't know what if there's any neurologist out there that can tell me what's <laughs> going on in my brain because like seriously since high school I would say the wrong first numbers and then the right later, later numbers with dates and times yeah. and I don't understand what's that like I like if I wrote it down I would write it down correctly I literally just say the right. wrong numbers I don't get it yeah like you're picturing in your head 1845 but you say 1745 yeah yeah and like just now, I wasn't doing this from memory. I'm looking at 1916. <laughs> I'm looking at it on my screen here, and I say 2016. It, what's wrong with me? <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Woodrow Wilson promised to keep us out of the war, but things start going well for the Germans. The Germans then get too aggressive. Russia drops out because it's dealing with the, its own civil war and Bolshevik revolution stuff. Germany ramps up its submarine warfare, and American ships are getting attacked in the North Atlantic. So we'd even let... So the, the, the famous one we all know is the Lusitania, which was significant because 128 Americans were killed. But that was 1915. We'd essentially left, right. that, side, left, that, left that slide and say, well, Germany, you just better not let that stuff happen again. But they were starting to attack more U.S. ships again, although the death toll of all those total was still less than the Lusitania itself. And then, as we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast, the kind of straw that breaks the camel's back is that intercepted message to Mexico. The Zimmerman telegram. The Zimmerman telegram, where they're trying to convince Mexico to go to war with the U.S., which Germany hopes will keep us out of it. But then when that is uncovered, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This needs to stop. We're joining Wilson says enough is enough. Congress declares war on Germany, and we join World War One. And then that's kind of what ties into the film there, getting York and all the draft going there. Uh, but yeah, essentially, right. we replaced Russia. We, we kind of join Britain's side about the time Russia is bowing out. So Germany didn't get the reprieve and single war or single front war they were hoping for. And we kind of go on from there. Anyway, we've talked about World War One enough before. I just kind of wanted to focus specifically on the u.s yeah side of things there and why we were late getting into it well and it was never a question of how like which side the u.s was going to come in on like if if we came in it was going to be on the side of britain and france like just because of the cultural ties the economic ties like that was going to be the way that we were going to come in if we were going to come in even german americans felt that way too from what i could correct tell, that it's like well yeah. we're from germany but like yeah they're not doing what's right and we would be totally fine with joining against them right yeah well and i think by the time by the time we came in we kind of knew all right we can we can win this thing like we can do this like it's it's not really gonna yeah. be like that big of a deal and the same pride and bluff and blustering that was kind of you know the cause of world war in the first place Eventually, America was kind of like, well, we want to see what we can do, too. Let's go throw some punches. Right. Yeah. Actually, so not about the American involvement or the, yeah, the American involvement, but about the just how World War One gets started. There is a historian on YouTube named Sean Munger. I watch a lot of his videos. He has some really, really good, like long form historical videos. I especially appreciate the stuff that he does about like 
the 80s and 90s. So we did like one on Iran Contra that's really good. It's like a two hour video. He did another like two, two and a half hour video about uh, Desert Storm that I really liked. Hmm. But he just, at, at time of recording, this was in the last week, made a video about the fall of the five great monarchies in the World War One and after the World War One era. Like France, Germany, Ottoman Empire, like all that kind of stuff? I think it's Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia. Oh, France is already done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. China, and there was another one. Oh, I, that's I forget crazy. the fifth yeah, one. Yeah, okay. That's all about the same time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, So it and that video is like three hours long. It's awesome. You would love it. I would say, I'm excited. <laughs> but as part of that, he makes an aside video that's 45 minutes long on its own, but it's all about the July crisis and exactly how. So pretty much everyone who's like taken a high school history class knows, oh, World War One. Yep, it was started because Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. And so everybody knows that fact, but it's like, well, wait a minute. Why did that start the war? How does that one right, guy right. getting killed then turn into World War One? Right. And he goes through of the 45-minute explanation of exactly how that happens. And it is very involved. Very huh. involved. All the, And it gets, it, like, he goes into so much detail. Like, it goes all the way into, well, you know, a lot of these Western European countries, their railroads and timekeeping was a lot better than the Eastern European countries huh. and Russia. So Russia was actually forced... If they wanted to mobilize to try and get ahead of the Western European countries, they would have had, they had to mobilize beforehand. But then that mobilization, just for them to be prepared, actually was then used as a precipitation by the other guys to say, "Oh, well, Russia's already mobilizing, so now we get to mobilize too." And it's it's massively complicated. Like I said, the video is forty five minutes long. Interesting, interesting. But I would highly recommend going and watching that if you want to learn more about like exactly what the step by step you know, domino effect is to get from Franz Ferdinand being assassinated to now that all of Europe is at war. Well, of course, it was decades in the making. But yeah, what was that channel called? It's I think it's just the guy's name, Sean Munger. But he starts the video talking all the way back in the 1870s, like unification of Germany. Yes. And and then goes all the way through. So it's it's very, very good. And uh, so the other thought that occurred to me just now was how, because we mentioned how even we knew which side we were going to get on. So I never even thought about this. So we talk about, and we'll get more into this later with, I know the Chaplin episode deals with, we'll deal with this. But so basically heading into World War II, ironically, U.S. sentiment was more pro-German than it was heading into World War I. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, we talk about the early days of Hitler. Everyone's just like, eh, you know, they got a bad shake. He's just trying to make the best of it. And they, they kind of get screwed. Versus in World War One, it's like, what are these Germans doing? Right. Which is just crazy to think about right. that distinction when looking back. It's like you don't think of the Germans in World War One as being, quote, evil like you think of right. the Nazis. That's yeah. inter interesting. Interesting. Probably the last thing here to include in the episode, unless you had anything else about the film itself, I was just going to talk about the 1916 election because we're kind of trying oh. to go through all our presidential history here we had we had kind of gone up through uh, 1912 was the teddy roosevelt spoiler effect uh which gets wilson elected in the first place mm -hmm. and then so now 1916 is when wilson gets re-elected middle of world war one as far as europe is concerned but the u.s has not gotten in we mentioned he does run on a i'll keep us out of the war policy okay so his his opponent was in this election was charles hughes who was actually very 
popular and considered the favorite to win the 1916 election. So he was kind of the perfect guy to reunite a Republican Party that was split in 1912 between Roosevelt and Taft because he had basically kept his hands clean. And so the Taft people couldn't say, well, he's just a Roosevelt guy. The Roosevelt people couldn't say he's just a Taft guy. He was kind of seen as, I'm a Republican who literally didn't have a dog in that fight because he had been busy holding other positions. Um, So he'd been in in the past uh, governor of New York and a Supreme Court justice. So he's still the only person at time of recording to have been a sitting (laughs) Supreme Court justice and then go on to receive his party's nomination for president after that. Okay. He wasn't necessarily pro-war, from what I could tell, but he definitely wanted to, more so than Wilson was like, but we need to make sure that we're prepared when it comes, because it's coming. So okay. maybe a little more pragmatic, but you know the American people didn't necessarily like that. But all that said, he was like heading into election day, the, I guess, I don't know if it was polling per se back then, but like people thought, well, Hughes is going to win. He's the favorite heading into election okay. day. And it was actually crazy close. So Wilson does hang on to win the Electoral College 277 to 254. It was a very close election, which is just kind of crazy how you just think, completely forget and no one's heard of Charles Hughes nowadays. Yeah. And so the South overall, you mentioned, uh, well, actually, no, I guess it was, you said it was World War II that York was in favor of, not World War One. Correct. But uh, yeah, the, the South was pretty against the war in general. Basically, in the whole isolationism thing, basically, we just saw ourselves, we are strong and isolated from all the European stuff, and we have this great Navy, which we talked about the gunboat diplomacy and the Panama Canal stuff. Our Navy was really strong, and it's almost just like, that was just like kind of like our wall. Going <laughs> back to, there you go, the Lord, uh, Game of Thrones we always like to talk about. Mm. The rest of the world was the wildings, and our Navy was the wall. And we're right. just fine here in the U.S. We got everything we need. We just don't want to get involved, and we're protected by our Navy from the outside world. So let's just, just – it kind of makes sense in that time that we had this strong isolationist uh, streak. And then down south specifically, they kind of saw when there was ever any talk of getting into the war, they're like, that's just the w- rich northern elites wanting to get involved for their own self-interest and send the poor there to die on their behalf. And so just right. hugely against it. But yeah, actually, and at the time, like in like 1916 or whatever, the polling or uh, or public sentiment, it does seem the more educated you were in the U.S. at the time, the more likely you were to support entry into World War One. Huh. Although oddly, what I saw was looks like Central Tennessee, you know, where York here was from, uh, was one of the few pockets in the South that was actually a little more in favor of potentially joining the war for whatever reason. Huh. Uh, so in 1915, there was even a popular song called I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. And, you know, stuff like that was was just, we just didn't want to get involved. I mentioned the ships that started, it's actually 10 ships that got uh, sunk in early 1917 uh, before the Zerman telegram. Then this kind of how World War One wraps up. I was kind of curious from a, oh, kind of like, you know, D-Day for World War II, I was trying to look at, like, so what actually then precipitated the, and again, this may be something you can speak more to uh, than I can here, but I'll, I'll read my notes and you can kind of chime in. So the end of the war for World War One seems to have been less about any significant decisive campaign or battles, nothing like D-Day or the atomic bomb on Japan, but more just about Germany no longer being able to maintain the stalemate after the Ottoman Empire 
collapses. And so kind of just running out of resources. Yeah. And that the last push that resulted in the armistice in November of 1918 was called the 100 Days Offensive. But even that wasn't like a specific plan like D-Day. It was just the final series of victories as the war was ending. Yeah. Which then ties into the movie because then we see the Muse are going to are gone or whatever offensive which is what they talk about that's where the whole thing with york happens uh we see that in the film that began in late september of 1918 with the war ending you know a couple months six weeks later so similar to russia there's one i kind of didn't realize because like it was another one of the the monarchies that you collapsed like you were saying so similar to russia the germans also got fed up with their leadership and had a revolution which you know you don't hear about a german revolution but we know that the Weimar Republic is what ends up kind of taking place of, you know, the monarchy with the Kaiser. But there there was a little bit of a revolution there. It just wasn't as violent as the Russian one with the Tsar and his family getting executed. Yeah. The Kaiser kind of just kind of sees the writing on the wall, leaves the country and abdicates. And so it's just less of a bloody takeover. And then in the aftermath of that, they're like, we're going to set up you know, more of a republic kind of kind of thing. And that's how you get the Weimar Republic. Anyway, just kind of a little bit of a side note to kind of clean up World War One there and things I didn't think we had necessarily talked about on our world history timeline when we looked at World War One. Anyway, yeah. Oh, so then I, guess I always forget to plug our Patreon. Make sure you go over to patreon.com slash history and film. We will have some bonus content over there. There are a few things up there for free. And then if you join, you can get early access. And the big thing is uh, a lot of our, our side notes. Each week, we're trying to have just kind of a bonus conversation. Honestly, it's conversations Logan and I were having off air anyway that will kind of let you into some of it. It's going to be a little more history tidbits that didn't necessarily fit within the you know story we're kind of telling with uh with respect to the movie this week uh and sometimes there's other random stuff <laughs> that comes up like me ranting about time zones or whatever else today i'm actually gonna be talking about the astor family which i hadn't told logan that yet uh over there so yeah check that out next week on our regular feed here we will get to the warren Beatty film reds <laughs> <laughs>